0: Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome back. We're in 1 Samuel 19, Lord willing. So let's pray and let's jump into it. Or, well, you can stay seated. We'll read it. And Saul spoke to Jonathan. Oh, I said, let's pray and then we'll read. Okay, let's, we'll do that. Sorry. Just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for... Um, This day, thank you for watching over us and caring for us this day as we've been about various errands and other aspects of our calling. We pray that you would make us mindful of your watchful care that extends to so many moments that we take for granted day by day. We pray that you'd be with us this evening as we read the text, as we discuss it together, as we consider. Uh, What it tells us of you and of ourselves, of our sin, of your mercy and grace, of our need for Jesus and of your abundant provision for that need. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. All right, for reals this time. We'll read 1 Samuel 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, And said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow, you will be killed. So Michael led David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came... Sorry, I lost track. I don't know if I've skipped over verses there. So Verse 21 when he was told, Saul, he sent other messengers. Thank you. I, I did skip over some verses. Okay, And they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Naioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? All right. What do you see? What questions do you have?
1: Explain to me a little
0: bit more about this prophesying stuff where they get naked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm glad that's not part of the ordination process. <laughs> There's some kind of association with the, the office of a prophet, the behavior of a prophet, and then being on the, the margins of society. Um, doing things that other people interpret as, uh, as a little nuts, right? Whether it's singing, whether it's raving, whether it has other odd behavior associated with it. Here, there's something particularly significant because Saul is pursuing David. He's in the office of king, right? And, and the, the last moment of this scene is Saul stripping off his clothes. Who did we see last week taking off their clothes? Jonathan took off his clothes. Jonathan took off his clothes. Now, Jonathan didn't take off all his clothes, right? But everything that symbolized his office, the expectation that he would be the heir, right? Everything that symbolized who he was as the royal son and as a warrior for Israel, he took off and placed on David. Jonathan, in that moment, was recognizing that David is the one that what was expected to fall to me will fall to David. And he was visually symbolizing that and, and demonstrating his commitment to David, though it be to his own hurt. Jonathan did that voluntarily. Here at the close of this chapter, that's bookended by Saul being stripped by the Lord as he prophesies or raves we talked about it's the it's the same verb that describes Saul's actions when he's in the house when he throws the spear in the previous chapter so whether the prophets always wandered around naked well no because sometimes they take off their garments and tear them into pieces right Uh, but sometimes they get told to wander around naked for three years symbolizing that Egypt is going to be carried naked into exile right to lay naked on their side and, and lay siege to a little model of Jerusalem like, like Ezekiel did while he's also baking his bread over what was supposed to be human dung. But the Lord says, okay, it can be a cow patty, right? Think about that anytime somebody says, hey, you should try this Ezekiel bread, right? That people actually sell, not having read Ezekiel. I don't want any of that.
2: <laughs> but there are some other scriptural references of people stripping and it's it's not what we think of as nakedness necessarily in those other passages. We can only speak to the word used here, but the suggestion that, as I see it, is that he was experiencing a
0: time of
2: possible genuine worship. No.
0: Nope. 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 Uh,
2: it, but yeah, if that had been the case. It occurred to me that maybe he had just stripped himself of the royal clothing that identified him as something more than the guy next to him
0: more personal. Yeah. Yeah, this is not something Saul enters into willingly, right? As we read the passage, he is on a mission to hunt down David and kill him. He's, he finds out where he is, like. Like every other time Saul comes into information is because somebody else has to tell him, right? Um, But he is diverted from that mission by the Lord's intervention resulting in this. And for him, this is not something positive that exemplifies a change and maybe a heart of worship coming over him. Instead, this is heaping shame upon him as the Lord who has chosen David over him causes him to remove his robes of office?
2: Well, then why would it end with the, the question?
0: Maybe rhetorical. Good. When's the last time we heard this phrase? Because we heard it previously.
2: These questions are too hard.
0: When he- it's Okay. It's in your Bible. You can just go, go to the left a few pages. Yeah. When he was anointed originally? Yes. So at the beginning of Saul's ministry, right? Samuel says all these things are going to happen, right? And the spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you and you're going to prophesy. And so back in... Right, and, he, and he does. And so everybody says, well, is he also among the prophets? Right? This is back in chapter 10... And verses eleven and twelve, excuse me. Well, nine through nine through thirteen, really. So he he comes to Gibeah, and a group of prophets meet him. The Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he prophesies. And in chapter ten, that proverb is the result of the Spirit of God rushing upon him in a way that confirms his election as king. Here, the actions associated with the proverb and the repetition of the proverb coincide with a symbolic demonstration of the kingship being removed from it. So that proverb kind of bookends Saul's kingship. Does that make sense? So this,
2: So you just take it from this that this was just a Strategic, um, lip service superficial involvement with the prophets when Saul was there in whatever condition of prophesying was going on or whatever that word prophecy means or writing
0: I would phrase that differently um, what Saul does is the direct result of the spirit of God rushing upon him and compelling him to do something does that makes sense in other words, this is not why he came to Rama right he didn't go seeking out the prophet so that he could be or a priest so that he could be reconciled to the Lord right he wasn't there looking for a mountaintop experience unless that included taking David and throwing him off the cliff right he was there. To assassinate an enemy. And the Lord sends his spirit upon him to divert him from that task. So it raises all kinds of questions about prophets and the gifting of prophets, and can what is his relationship as one who prophesies to the office of prophet? And can the Lord speak through one? who's not elect and, well, yeah, he does it through Balaam. He does it through Pharaoh Nico later, speaking to Josiah. Uh, several other examples as well as God using um, people who are not worshipers of the Lord as his mouthpiece to prophesy. So, still lots of unanswered questions from that. Yeah.
1: So I think it's later in Israel's history, but I think it's Elisha that a king... Sends people to go and basically assassinate, and Saul's presence coming here would be, probably be a danger to Samuel. um uh, no one's struck dead though, um, is that, should we take that as like God being merciful, God protecting Saul for some reason, God not ready to install David? What is, what
0: do you think we should read into that, if anything? That's a good question that I don't have a good answer for. Because, yeah, this could have been a moment where the Lord struck him with a lightning bolt. And then, boom, everybody's already a huge fan of David. Let's just install him as king and move on. But he doesn't. Yeah, this is a a moment when the Lord could have intervened differently than he did. And why he allows for this protracted decline of Saul... While David's on the run, I don't know, perhaps, among other things, it's a time that the Lord uses to train David to fully rely on the Lord. So I'd still be asking, as an Israelite, well, what about us? Why, why does that mean we have to keep putting up with this guy for however many more years? So, Ezra.
1: Um, it says that Saul swore, as the Lord lives that David should not be put to death. But then he wants David put to death, like a minute
0: later. Yes. When
1: he just swore that no one should put him to death.
0: Now, as we're reading the text, it comes across as a minute later. This is sometime later. We don't know how long. Probably not the next day. Maybe the next week. But yes, Saul does not seem to feel bound by his word. And for that matter, this is not the first time that Saul has made an oath and then one way or another gone back on it. An oath in the Lord's name, for that matter.
1: On the prophecy thing, I always think a prophecy is predicting something that's going to happen. Is that how you interpret the word prophecy? And if so... Why
2: did he not, if Saul was prophesying about the future, why didn't they include it? It almost sounded like they were having seizures
0: or something. Slaying <laughs> in <of> the spirit. <laughs> so the question of prophecy is a huge question as we try and wrap our heads around the historical and cultural context here, and also as we try and think about Old Testament prophets, what they were, what they did. In thinking about Old Testament prophets broadly, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Samuel, and others. um, We often think of um, fortune tellers, like they're predicting the future, they're announcing what's going to happen. They don't never do that, but primarily it might be better to think of them as preachers, And as covenant lawyers, their primary audience is almost always the people in front of them, right? And this is a mistake we make in reading Old Testament prophecy. We make the same mistake in reading the book of Revelation, right? As we read what's written and we want to skip over the audience it was written to and ask what it says to us. It's a good question to ask. It's just so we have to ask other things in between, right? Um, if it meant nothing, or if what we make of it would have meant absolutely nothing to the people they addressed, we've probably missed the boat, right? But especially because they speak in categories of judgment of doom, of restoration, of promise, and even speaking beyond the present situation into the the fullness of the new heavens and new earth. There is absolutely an element of future prediction to that. But think of them primarily as preachers or covenant lawyers speaking to the people in front of them about If you continue in this pattern of behavior, for instance, this is what God has said he will do. But if you repent, then you will have this outcome instead. Or because you have done this, God will punish you in this way. But your children will turn and repent and he will restore them. And you can see that contains this element that's both to the people in front of them and speaks of what's beyond the people in front of them to later generations. So Now, that doesn't answer the question of why the nakedness, why the association with music, why all of these other things. And in the broader context of um, the ancient Near East, the behavior of prophets was associated with all kinds of things, like music, ex- what we would call ecstatic behavior, speaking in tongues, doing weird things, right? When David goes to hide among one people and they, they're like, ah, maybe we should kill this guy, right? He lets spit dribble down his beard and is banging on doors and things like that. And that's, that's behavior that they would associate with a prophet, like neighboring people's, recognized the office of prophet, someone either serving in the royal court or out on the margins of society who would theoretically, right, be uh, delivering the word of the deity to those people or to that king, so.
2: Thoughts of John the Baptist come to mind. You know, a guy living on the edge, wearing animal clothing Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was definitely
0: on the edge. Yeah. And we, we see kind of two classes of prophets. We see those on the edge, and we also see those actually serving in the royal court.
2: Back in chapter 15, it says Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his the death. Then here it says that Saul prophesied before Samuel. Yep. Did I miss
0: something there? Nope. Nope, you didn't. So. Yeah, because it says, 15, verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. So, when they were putting this together with scotch tape and scissors, right? They missed that. and got left in.
1: <laughs> well, it says Samuel went more to see Saul. So to me, that means that he would have initiated a visit well, to Saul. Uh,
2: yeah, but did Saul go see Samuel? It, as,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah. So, of course, one way to look at that is that, you know, it's just a mistake somebody made. And I think that is a perfectly ridiculous way of looking at it, right? Um, that suggests there are lots of people who will seriously suggest things like that. And I think that gives far too little credit to the people who've been reading the Bible for the 2,000, 2,500 years before we came along and and read it, right? This isn't something that they slipped under the radar hoping that no one would notice. But as Saul and Samuel encounter one another here, it's not in Saul's official capacity. And that may be part of how we see that here, right? Um, Saul didn't come there to see Samuel and when he wanders into Samuel's presence, he's not himself, right? He's taken over and driven by this spirit from the Lord. For all we know, Saul may not even know when he gets up and wanders away that he's been in Samuel's presence. Although it does seem to give indication that Samuel probably knew. So? I'm
1: going back to what you asked. God, it says Saul sent messengers to David and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel there standing as leader over them the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied so I'm wondering oh it says that he prophesied
0: before Samuel
2: but Samuel didn't go to him Samuel so went yeah. to Samuel was play on words and how that
0: went. yeah so that may be a piece of it in that Samuel didn't come to Saul Saul went there yeah other translations have put it as um, he didn't see him again until the day of his death
2: i find it today that and through centuries there are, the people have named their children Saul <laughs> and and the picture that I see emerging here is I don't even know if he's in heaven and you know that's being narrowly judgmental for sure but I mean part of me of course wants to believe that whatever happened in those last few verses that he was in a spiritual condition of of worshiping the one true God. I want to believe that, of course. But you seem very determined that that was not the case, that he was there. But I think of all the people who, for whatever reason, are dragged to the church house, or dragged to a Bible study, or resist coming to a time of worship, God, and something happens that their hearts are changed, their attitudes are changed, and so it occurred to me, though, that maybe, maybe this encounter that Samuel had with this person was not the Saul that strategically set out or wandered into this occasion of prophecy with not so much clothing on, you know, or if at all, you know. I'm just thinking about all these uh, desert dancers in Arizona that people build bonfires and jump around. I mean, you had to be a crazy time. I'm just thinking now. You were there. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been
0: out uh, there. Sure. <laughs> <Burn, man. laughs> moving on. Well, it's yeah. Moving on. A <laughs> couple of things to keep in mind, right? One is when we name a child after someone, I, I think most of us, right, are hoping that they will emulate the best qualities of the person we name them after and not all of their faults and foibles, whether they be small or or great. Um, And Saul did do much that was good for Israel, even if it was despite himself. And especially if you're in Benjamin. I mean, you don't have a whole lot of people to pick from to name your kids after if you want to pay tribute to your tribe. And Saul's one of the better characters. Um, Also, another thing to keep in mind is, um, and we we talk about this as well with Solomon in the book of Kings, right? Think about the purpose of the author in Samuel as they are narrating for us the, the decline of Saul and the rise of David and the election of David to replace Saul because of Saul's sin. It would not serve his narrative purpose to tell us about Saul repenting at the end of his life, even if Saul did and he knows it. That's not going to further the story he's telling, right? Um, and when we when we read the book of Kings and then we ask, well, What about Ecclesiastes? Did Solomon write Ecclesiastes or not? Because Ecclesiastes sounds like it could come from Solomon. And it sounds like an old man reflecting on a life that was largely vain and futile. And that this is a turn toward the Lord. Well, you read the book of Kings. And that that fits the description of the end of Solomon's life. Except... The book of Kings doesn't tell us anything about Saul sitting down and reflecting in his old age and saying, you know, that was stupid and turning his back on the gods of his wives and returning to the Lord. But the book of Kings is driving us toward the reality of exile and demonstrating to us along the way that it's the fault of the kings and the people's willingness to follow the king's in their abandonment of the Lord that got us here. And so it wouldn't suit his purpose to say, oh, by the way, Solomon actually repented at the end of his life, right? Because for him, Solomon is the beginning of the downfall of the whole nation. So?
2: I'm going to ask a question about um, Michael, when she, the image well, there had to be some types of idols in the house. Yeah, that bothered me. Good, good. David yes. was tolerating idols in his household. So, I mean, she still, they still had them. So David, I mean, you know, David was among among this.
0: Yes, ma'am.
2: Was it a variation on a horseshoe or something like
0: that? No. <laughs> Would be very difficult to pass off a horseshoe under a bedspread yeah. <laughs> as as a body, right? And actually, that act that Michael does in covering it over with a blanket suggests that it was probably pretty close to life size. Um, so that raises all manner of questions. What's going on with Michael? And this is Saul's daughter. What's going on with David? Yeah, this is Saul's daughter. Um, Is this, did David marry poorly? Or did David lead Michael into this? Or was this just some regular feature of Israelite life, right? You go to the temple on the high days and burn a candle in front of the household idol the rest of the week. All kinds of questions raised by that. Um, The narrator doesn't stop to... um, scold Michael, but the narrator goes out of his way to make sure we know what it was she used, right? Like narrator didn't have to tell us that she put an image that happened to be in the house in the bed. So that raises all kinds of questions. But another thing it raises is a comparison between Michael and Rachel. Remember Rachel in the book of Genesis. Now, the household idols she has seem to be smaller since she can hide them in her saddle. Uh, But she covers them over and in doing so deceives her father and for the benefit of her husband. And each of those ways seems to parallel what Michael does here. Now, whether there's more to that or not, I don't know. But we do see... In both of those cases, the daughter of a powerful man casting her lot with her husband who is chosen by God.
1: Well, with Rachel, Jacob didn't even know she'd stolen the idols from her father's house. So that's not quite yep. the same thing as covering for her husband. She's not a good and if anything happens to him, she's in a whole lot of trouble. So I'm not really sure that's hers
0: covering for him. Let's just cover him first. No, no, no. To her husband's advantage, not necessarily covering for him. Yeah. As, as much as there are parallels, there are also very very significant distinctions, and that's one of them. Yeah. Jacob doesn't seem to know, I have any idea what Laban's even talking about in Genesis. Like, what? That's That's crazy. Go through my stuff. See if you can find it. Right, which he wouldn't have done if he's like, hey, Rachel, hurry up, hide it. Right? Whereas David clearly knows. Yeah, yeah. There's also um, Michael lets him down through the window. Rahab, um, Saul, in Acts, right? Other Saul. Maybe most people are naming their, their kids after that Saul. But that raises who is he named after, right? Um, that implies that their house is probably in the wall of the city. Because otherwise, the people that Saul sent would have seen him. So, and that raises questions for interpreters in different ages that it doesn't for us, right? Because that means the wall of the city was breached, and historically, like that's a huge no-no. Righteous people don't do that. Like, mm, no. Um, Calvin spends a whole paragraph. Explaining why Saul being let down through the window in the book of Acts was, was not sinful and was actually a, a godly action. She was her father's
1: daughter, too, and that the truth escaped her. Uh, he was going to kill me.
0: Yeah. Yep. yep. In that moment, whether it's a failing, and, and again, that's a place where the narrator doesn't stop to scold, but he does make very clear What happened, and there's a very clear difference between what he narrates about what happens between David and Michael and what Michael reports to Saul. Whether that's a failure of courage on her part or not, right? She's casting her lot with David against her father, Um, but maybe her knees start to shake a little bit when dad comes in and he's mad.
2: This is the same woman. Who made fun of David dancing in the
0: square? Well, it's not made fun of. She despises.
2: Yeah, and then he no longer had a relationship. But is this yeah. the same lady?
0: Yes, same lady. And we'll talk about that uh, again when we get there. But, but apparently, she'd not born a child to David prior to that point. Uh, and he essentially shuts her up for the rest of her life, which closes the door on their ever being. Anyone who had any genetic ties to Saul taking the throne over Israel. But here, she's a heroine. There's a lot of threes. There are a lot of threes in the chapter. So in the previous chapter, um, we're told that David evaded Saul's spear twice. And he evades it again here, which would be a third time. Um, Saul sends three separate groups of messengers to Ramah before going himself. So lots of threes, a couple of examples there. Um, There's also... Did the spear stick in the
2: wall in previous references? I mean, it was very interesting that they made the point that the spear stuck in the wall as David dodged again. I mean, that just told me how sharp it
0: Yeah, it doesn't mention that in... Yeah, chapter 18 doesn't mention it sticking in the wall. No. But here it does.
2: Well, once again, Jonathan, true friend, took a certain amount of courage, made a lot of courage to go to his dad, still the king, in charge, right or wrong, and say, why would you kill this
0: guy? Let's look at that. Because Jonathan's handling of his father um, has been pointed at points, pointed it, has been very direct at moments, uh, will become more so as this progresses. But in this conversation in chapter 19, it's, he's very careful and he's not accusatory, right? Arguably, Saul has already sinned against David, and multiple times at that. But that's not how Jonathan phrases it, right? Saul tells him, hey, let's kill David. Um, but Jonathan and David have this back and forth. It's like, you hide. I'll talk to my dad. Um, picking up in verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, And said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, David. Not, hey, you're sinning against David. Or why have you sinned against David? But hey, don't sin against David. Because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? He's your servant. He's loyal to you. His actions have prospered you. You have rejoiced in them. They have demonstrated and indeed been the means of God's deliverance of the people over whom you rule. Why would you sin against him? Don't do this. Right? And this time, right, Jonathan's words win over his father. Later they won't. Later they won't. But here, it's like Jonathan has a really high emotional intelligence. And he knows how to navigate this conversation with his father. But for us as readers, especially moving from chapter 18 into chapter 19 and through chapter 19 to the end, what looks like a wise and careful son being able to talk his father down from a moment of passion is for us just one more moment in this wild roller coaster of Saul being just completely. Unable to manage and handle himself, as he right, especially to us as readers, he's just more and more demonstrating how he is unfit for office.
1: It seems that um, Samuel had a point at the beginning. Like, why do you want a king? You should. We don't. You don't need a king. You have a king, and he's the Lord. And now the Lord is displaying that that the Lord.
0: Be their king. The yep. This is something we've talked about a few times and it's good to come back to, right? The Lord is Israel's king, has been Israel's king, has acted as Israel's king, but they have insisted on a human representative, one who will go out before them and fight their battles. And through Samuel, the Lord warned them what that king would be like. And we've seen Saul do exactly what Samuel said they would do, right? Um, When he takes David into his service and will not let him return to his father's house. That's exactly what Samuel warned of. He will take your sons, right? Back in chapter 8. And yet, the flip side of that is the Lord has been preparing to rule Israel through a human king, but on his terms, not, right, not Israel's terms. And so although Saul was elected in answer to the people's wishes, which as expressed were in defiance of the Lord's provision the question hanging over the beginning of Saul's reign was, despite how we got here, will he rule according to the Lord's design or not? He doesn't, right? Um, And so what we're hoping for, what we're set up to expect is, will David then, whenever he ends up taking the throne, will David rule according to the Lord's design?
1: It seems that the only king that fits the description in Deuteronomy is God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now David will fit it better than Saul. And for that matter, David will fit it better than Solomon. And so David, for all of his faults, David becomes the standard of comparison as the historians of Judah assess the long history of kings of Israel and Judah in the book of Kings, right? The constant comparison will be to David, not to Solomon, not to Saul, but to David. And you're coming to Kings straight from Samuel, where especially from 2 Samuel, we're left kind of scratching our head, like, why on earth would you want to compare kings to... Somebody who committed adultery and then murder and then a cover-up and then nearly lost the kingdom to his son and then seemed to be somewhat impotent in office for the rest of his life. Like, why on earth would that be your standard of comparison? But it's because, among other things, David modeled repentance. Right? Deuteronomy 17 does not expect a perfect king but expects a king, demands a king, who is attentive to God's law and walks closely with the Lord. That's actually, if I could divert us for a moment, that's an important reminder as we think about nominating new elders, right? The Lord is ordained to rule his church through imperfect people through elders and ministers and deacons who have faults, faults which will at times affect the health of the church. But do those officers, uh, potential officers being considered, officers in office now, right? Do they, by example, walk with the Lord, walk in repentance, model what it looks like to... Bring their sin to the Lord that they might be reconciled and walk closely with him. Um, especially, you know, I wiped it all off before we started, but we still had that list of things from Sunday school on Sunday on the board when people were arriving this evening. And I look at that list and think, well, gee, I should, I should quit. But it's a reminder that the Lord is ordained to, to govern his church through flawed men. Whom he has also promised to support in their work, not least through the prayers of his people. That wasn't good enough for Saul.
2: But David and all his followers. Uh, and he is still in the lineage of, of Jesus. Yes. So we and I remember I can think of the verse where God said that uh, that uh, there will always be a descendant of David on the throne, which is obviously branches to Jesus.
0: Second Samuel 7. We'll, we'll get there shortly. Shortly.
2: Ha-ha. <laughs> 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 well, speaking of uh, David's imperfection, uh, they were magnified when he didn't go out into war, when he stayed home. Hmm. And uh, it just occurred to me, or uh, I wondered, did Saul... Go to war against the Philistines at this point where Jonathan has come, smoothed the waters, maybe negotiated some peace between Saul and David, and then they go to war. So I'm wondering, did Saul go? Or do we know? Does it say? Or did I miss it?
0: Well, looking at verse 8, right? That's a good question, right? And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him, right? So David went, fought, struck, so that they fled before him. All all singular. Meanwhile, Saul, right? A harmful spirit from the Lord came upon him as he sat in his house, the spear in his hand. I don't know that we're necessarily to connect that that far forward, but it is noticeable that the very, and I think we commented on it in previous weeks, the specific thing that Israel wanted from Saul, David's doing. And his initial foray into doing that is thanks to Saul, because Saul is hoping that that might be a means of getting rid of him.
2: So David goes out and various versions say it differently, but, but I'm left with the understanding that David put another weapon on him. Yeah. Pretty
0: serious. He succeeded wherever gone. he turned. And he's probably
2: saluted again in a very public way. I think that's fair to conclude. And so, so he's back in the
0: court,
2: playing his music, and Spirit Chipper comes back. <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> he digs
2: in the
0: wall. He twangs the string and the spear twangs behind him. Now, there's no small amount of irony in that every move Saul uses to try and maneuver, right? And in chapter 18, it's subtle maneuvering to try and get rid of David. And over the course of chapter 19, and particularly with that, moment in the house with the spear, it's become open and public, his attempt to get rid of David. But all of his attempts to get rid of David, one way or another, on the sly or out in the open, only achieve the opposite of what Saul wants. Because as he sends him out with the army, hoping the Philistines will get rid of him, he succeeds when he says, you know, all, all I want for, make sure you tell him that all I want, right? As a, as a dowry for my daughter is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Well, David goes out with the army and brings back 200, right? Um, and then with the move into this chapter, as he maneuvers within the court, to try and get rid of David as he does these various things, it results in his children, who we already know love David, taking public stands with David against their father. And David gets away. And, and as we follow him through the next several chapters, though David is on the run from Saul, yet he will continue to be used by the Lord to fight Israel's battles and deliver them at various points. Saul can't be bothered. The Philistines are able to make raids into Israel because Saul is far away from the border chasing David in the interior of Judah, far away from the Philistine frontier. So they find the the gates unguarded and there's nobody at the border checkpoints. They just roll through and start tearing things up because Saul wasn't where he should be but even as David is on the run he delivers various towns and protects God's people so just again demonstrating his fitness for office over against Saul's the Lord's hand with him and not with Saul making him all the more popular with the people as the people are grumbling more and more against Saul, so from this point on, and even earlier, everything Saul does to try and get rid of David, the Lord turns to good for David and for his people. I doubt it felt like that to David in the moment. In the
1: First point
0: of nineteen, and then the
1: first point of twenty
2: talks about being in the field. Yes, ma'am. What kind of field? Arizona, Arizona, the bonfire. Now I'm just wondering what kind of field. You know, cornfield? I mean, you know, I don't know the thing anymore. But it has to be something that, because he talks about it
0: being in Mm -hmm. It It doesn't give anything more specific in this description of the field. I do think field implies cultivated land that the word would have been wilderness if it was uncultivated. Most of the times I think of off the top of my head where we hear the word field and we can clearly distinguish its, its cultivated fields that are being talked about. But what kind of crops? I don't know.
2: Cultivated or just not tree?
0: I, I think cultivated. Uh, I don't know that for sure.
2: Because it seems like it was wheat or something that would have
1: said, as opposed to just a
0: field. Well, it could have been wheat, it could have been barley, it could have been... Any number of things, but the the open country is typically described as wilderness, sometimes translated desert, but the same word. Uh, and the wooded land is described as forest.
2: But it had to be tall enough.
0: Well, it could have been tall crops that he hid. He could have laid down. He could have popped down in a creek. He could have hid behind a rock. You
2: know, what is going on over there with King Stan? <laughs>
0: you, <laughs> you asked what kind
1: of field it was. <laughs> he had a response. I didn't hear that. Yeah.
2: I said it was a marijuana feeling. That's what had that David <laughs> so screwed
0: Show that I did not make coffee this evening, so this is not the fault of anything. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing to notice. One more thing to notice in the text. This, right. This does kind of serve as a, as a bookend at this end of Saul's reign, although Saul continues in power for a few chapters. Remember the beginning of Saul's, right, when we first meet Saul, right? He can't find his own donkeys. He's wandering up and down the land. Um, and When they go to see Samuel, right, we have that inverted type scene where we have this eligible young bachelor son of a wealthy father on his way into town encounter a a group of maidens at a well which spells wedding right in all capital letters except nothing happened which was a little preview of just how frustrating Saul's reign would be for Israel well now he's on his way to where Samuel is again and note the reference in verse 22 when he goes, because the prophets, right? Because the guards, he sent, the messengers he sends, he prophesied. And so he goes himself. Verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he goes up and his plans are frustrated and whether it's because of what's in the field or not, right? He (laughs) lays down naked prophesying, right? Um, He's once again going to try and find Samuel. He's on his way into the same town. It may well be, sorry, it may in fact be the same well. Here it's named, there it wasn't. But there are no young women. There's no hope of a wedding there's only a mad Saul on the hunt for David, whose plans are again frustrated.
1: Is it um, supposed to speak of Saul's impotence that there is never a mention of having a wife? Like you have David, Solomon, pretty much so many of the kings in First Kings, Second Kings, Second Kings, their wives are mentioned in some capacity, and Saul is just there's Jonathan, but.
0: Yeah. Wife. yeah, there's Jonathan, there's other sons. Um, yeah, That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Because he has daughters. He has at least one son. So clearly, I mean, he had a life partner, right? Presumably a wife, but she's never mentioned. Um, I do think that actually speaks more of David speaks well of David as opposed to speaking well or ill of Saul. The reason I would say that is because the typical way you established dominance as the king in the ancient Near East and in many other parts of the world in human history, right, is you built a capital, you built a temple, and you took your predecessor's wives into your own harem. David builds a capital, he prepares to build a temple, although he doesn't build it himself, but he doesn't have to legitimate his reign by taking Saul's wives into his harem, because the Lord has anointed him for this. Whereas his son, when we get to it, his son does do that with David's concubines, and Absalom tries to take over. A Sour note to end on.:
2: <laughs> When they would take the, uh, the king's spouse or concubine or whoever it was, uh, was that to, I think, humiliate the king that they were replacing, if that would? What...
0: I think that was certainly an element of it. Um, part of it was just a display of dominance, and in, and in that, humiliating the defeated king. I think part of it was a stamping out of the, of the line of the defeated king. They probably would have executed his sons as well.
2: Um, Cases later on, they certainly did. They did. Yes, sir. Uh,
0: and I think also it would, often those wives would be there because of treaties with neighboring nations. And so I think sometimes it may also have been an attempt to try and... Um, either absorb and take on those treaties is like now I'm the one you have the treaty with or to thumb their nose at the nations who had made those treaties and say hey I'm coming for you next so depending on the context all right well let's pray we'll move on to chapter 20 next week Lord thank you for your word thank you for the text of Samuel It shows so clearly to us a people who deeply want a leader, but on their own terms, even despite the fact that you had been at work preparing a leader for them on your terms. Lord, may we heed the warning that they present to us. May we be slow to lay hands on someone. May we be quick to repent. May we see in David as we continue amidst all of the complexity, his desire to be close to you and attentive to your word. May we avoid pride and the self-interest and the scheming of Saul, those like him. we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.